This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season now's the time to buy at fisher homes for a limited time only enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375 percent apr 6.139 percent apr with these exclusive lower rates you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home financing provided by victory mortgage llc nmls 461249 equal housing lender This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today, painter Eric Fischel, became known in the 1980s art scene for work that explores issues of sexuality and power and what it means to become a man. In Bad Boy, which Fischel describes as his most famous and notorious painting, there is a naked woman lying on a bed. A young boy is standing in front of her, his hands behind his back, seeming to be taking something from her purse. The complexity of his early pieces can be attributed, Fischel has acknowledged, to his childhood. He grew up in the privileged country club culture of Long Island, to be specific, the Port Washington Yacht Club. But his mother suffered from depression and alcoholism and committed suicide when Fischel was 22. After decades of living in New York City, he and his wife, painter April Gornick, now live full-time in eastern Long Island. In his recent autobiography, Bad Boy, My Life On and Off the Canvas, Fischl details his youth, the art world, his own struggles with depression and substance abuse, and his thoughts about the creative process. For Eric Fischl, the book challenged him in unexpected ways. The difficult part of writing it wasn't the early stuff where it was about family traumas and, and uh, you know, the sort of dealing with that. That was actually the easiest part to write because I put that into my paintings and stuff. So I'd already kind of gone through the emotional ramifications. What was difficult was actually trying to find some perspective in the present moment as to what my feelings were, what was going on in the world around me at that time. I went through a lot more uh, um, confused feelings about the present. In the past, I dealt with it so much in the work that I, I knew exactly what I felt. It was just a matter of putting it into words. Eric Fischel first picked up a paintbrush in college, an experience he describes as an awakening. Fischel was in the first undergraduate class at Cal Arts, a place that would become known as much for orgies as conceptual art. It would be some time before his skill, talent, and voice found a home in realism. 
I started out being trained as an abstract painter. You know, if you you were going to be a painter, you should be an abstract painter. So I tried. What it turned out was that every abstract painting I made felt like it was absolutely the last painting I could make. Then at some point, I started to work with figures and with narrative and language and stuff like that, and it flowed. That's when I realized I was now doing the work that I was supposed to do, that I, that I, I was built for. And then it was a matter of getting better at it and you know, perfecting it, honing it, etc. And what was among the first things that, that led you to that? Like, What was the story? What was the narrative you thought, I want to put that on canvas somehow? It was a process, actually. The process was that I um, I found this transparent paper called glassine paper. It's this kind of paper they used to put chocolates in and stuff. It, it accepts oil paint beautifully. That is, it, the brush feels great gliding across this slick surface. If you make a mistake, you wipe it off. Very little shows of that, you know. And it's got this transparency. So I would start with a, an image, a chair. And I would paint a chair on this paper, and I'd stick it on the wall. And then I would sit and look at it, and I'd say, okay, where is this chair? Is it in the, you know, the living room? Is it in the dining room? Is there anyone sitting in the chair? And as I, uh, as I was thinking that, I'd go get another transparent piece of paper, lay it on top, and say, okay, it's a, a person, and they're sitting this way in the chair. No, that didn't work. Take that off. Get another one. Put that on. Okay, they're actually standing next to the chair. So I would paint that. And I would just talk to myself. And as I did, I would sort of create these images. And eventually a scene would emerge that seemed to resonate for me that had some kind of memory to it, some kind of feeling in it that was expressing something about relationships between people, families, inter-family relationships, people and objects that they surround themselves with. And then, you know, eventually I decided I wanted to actually bring that into the painting world and with color and canvas and stuff like that and more detail, more specific detail. And so it evolved into the work that I do now. There's a description in the book about how uh, it was the first time you were comfortable being alone when you had those mm-hmm. tools and the material in front of you, which I found fascinating. Was there ever a thought of you doing something else creatively? Well, music was out of the question because I have a tone-deaf ear, right. so I, I, there was no way I could do that. That's a problem. I was in a uh, a play in eighth grade in which I it was called It's Cold in Them Thar Hills. Yeah. And I played this hillbilly named Zeke who didn't speak through the entire play but was on stage the entire time until the very end when I had this, like, big speech where I proclaimed my love for this person who didn't know I was even present. Do you get the girl? And I get the girl. But it was like spending a lot of time kind of being present and absent at the same time was actually a profound experience for me. But it it didn't lead to me wanting to do the next play or to to do that. And I've actually become much more of a public person over the years. I was much more uh, um, reticent, much more uh, behind my eyes, which is really where the painter comes from. And it, it was a lot easier for me to, in private, 
have my thoughts and feelings and and uh, you know sort of express them before anyone ever saw them, and so I could actually control the form of expression before it entered the the world. So painting gave you art and privacy. Yes, exactly, exactly. But, but that changed. But that changed. But my sensibility is very much. The, I think consistent with you know an, an actor's sensibility and a, and a director's sensibility and and uh, in that in that sense of you know understanding what a dramatic moment actually is where where meaning is present and how it comes through not just a language uh, but it comes through a, a body language it comes through a light source it comes through a a, a clearly defined space and how one sort of negotiates that space. And th- those are the things that I'm most compelled with. And, and in fact, my, my greatest pleasure is when people in the uh, dramatic arts connect to my work because I feel like, you know, they get it in a way that, that you know, people, other painters don't necessarily. Well, you do expect them. the images at some point to start moving. Sometimes. To move, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or speaking. Yeah, and you know, I, I, my work is based on um, or that as a source material, photographs. What photography showed me, because it slices life so thinly, it showed me that everybody is in constant motion and that everybody is is off balance, and that that animates a scene. You know, that it, it's one of the reasons I don't actually bring models into the studio and have them pose for me because they become a static pose when what I'm looking for is something that triggers a feeling or a memory or a provocation of some kind. And I find that where you look at a photograph that you took of somebody that is, you know, just slightly turning, so, so shifting weight in their body, doing something like that that, that really sets the, those uh, questions what I love when I look at photographs, when I look at paintings, when I look at your paintings, when I look at uh, uh, films I like and the visual, because I, I went to an acting school where they said, watch the movie with the sound off. Hmm. And if you can't convey something, if, if, if the picture isn't telling the story 60, 75% of the time, mm-hmm. uh, then the, the movie's a Something's failure. wrong, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the difference between film and theater and, and painting is that in both film and theater, you build an emotional sort of construct, you build a narrative construct over a set period of time with various scenes that lead to it. With, with painting, you're, you know, you're trying to shrink it down into this one moment that when you stop that action is when it actually begins to spin the mood, spin the moment, spin the thoughts and, and projections and stuff. So it's about trying to find, okay, where do I stop the action, right? For me, you stop it at something just before something happens or just right after something happens. That if you, if you stop it in the middle of something happening, what you end up with is, is a kind of confusion that doesn't take you anywhere. But if you stop before... The audience rushes in to complete it. They know where it's going now. They, they, oh, that person's doing this and that's going to happen because they just blah, blah, blah. Or if right after, you know, dealing with the emotional aftermath of that, then, it's, then the, the audience again rushes in with the memory of those feelings that they associate with what just happened. 
that I find to be the real challenge and the fun part of it as well. You know, a painter, and this is my view, this is not, I'm not saying this is a commonly held view, but this is my view, and that is that the work I do, A, it requires an audience. Mm-hmm. And also somebody giving you a role. Right, and someone, and so, exactly, right. and someone, unless you're self-producing. Mm-hmm. But for you, my view of it is I'd sit there with a, and look at painters, and I think, God, how much I envy them, that you sit in a room, and you're totally self-generating, and you do exactly what you want to do, and then you send it out into the world and say, if you like it, great. If you don't, I really don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, it's completely unself-conscious in that way, unless you're doing a commission. You know what I mean? Yeah. And do you feel I that way? That I don't a part give a shit is a protective uh, is it? <laughs> response. I think it's like, God, I hope they like this. You do. You do. Oh, sure. Yeah, but that... You know, you've already done it. You you accept that it it may fall short of your hope and expectations. But I don't I don't believe any painter sitting there pretending that they only do the work for themselves and stuff. They're 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 seeking some kind of resonance, some some oh, yes. response. Yeah. Have you have you ever done a painting and you were mistaken, meaning you did a painting? And I'm being very melodramatic here, but you did a painting and you were done and you said, good God, Fischl, you've done it. <laughs> there it is. There you have it. And the, and, and the painting did not succeed in, in one term. And then other times you sat there and said the opposite. This is a piece of crap and it was one of your most successful yeah. paintings. Has that happened? I, that, not in the extreme. Right. But I, I've certainly done uh, paintings that I thought were uh, better than they were received. And I've certainly had the experience where I've seen paintings that I didn't think were so good when I did them and see them 10 years later and go, you know, that actually isn't that bad. (laughs) So I don't know. But uh, this is a little off the subject, but more back to sort of acting and and, uh, painting. I did a project once where I actually used actors. I was given a house, a Mies van der Rohe house in Krefeld, Germany, to... um, do some kind of interaction with the house. I never worked with actors before. And so I went to friends who were in the business, uh, you know, writers, uh, playwrights, screenwriters, whatever, directors, to give me some ideas. Like, how do you talk to an actor? What gets them going, et cetera? Because I had no clue. And the, the simplest advice came back from Mike Nichols, who said, oh, give them problems. They love problems. And I says, what the hell's the problem? They said, oh, you know, she wants to borrow 500 bucks from him, but she won't tell him why. Why well, just give him that? You'll see, yeah. right? Yeah. I was like, okay. So I, I went into this thing with these uh, two actors who happened to be German. They, they understood English, but they performed and, you know, they did whatever they did in what German. What a funny thing for him to choose. I know. <laughs> so I know, and that's strange. And I was taking still photographs, too. I was just clicking snapshots. I wasn't recording it. I didn't think I cared about, you know, the dialogue. I didn't care about the, uh, you know, sound, it's whatever. All, uh, you know, the, all I wanted were these sort of still moments. What blew my mind was that I would give them a problem, and I was surprised at how fast I could tell that the problem I gave them wasn't any good. They couldn't get animated. And they were just like... It, it, it wasn't it, achieving the desired effect. No, they were, they were just dead. It was like nothing. Their body couldn't even move hardly. So, and, the, and at the same time, when I gave them something they could really bite their teeth into... For example? 
Well, I, I did a— She'll uh, sleep with you, but she has to break up with her boyfriend first. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, the female actress had, like, zero interest in him. Uh, but she was very professional, and so we're going to do the bedroom stuff. And, and I set up uh, uh, some stuff in there, and it, it really wasn't working. It was, you know, uh, there was something. Uh, they were dressed in evening clothes. It was late to come home. You know, he's drunk. She's hoping that, you know, uh, they could have some sex maybe. He's, you know, what can't kind of get it together. It was lame. So he gets up and he goes off to the bathroom or something like that. And so I say to her, look, take off your clothes and get in the bed. You're a wild animal. Whatever you do, don't let him in the bed. Now, this bed that I had chosen was like a, a modernist bed that had this igloo of, a, of mosquito netting over it. So it made like a cocoon or something like that, a tent. So I said, whatever you do, don't let him in the bed. Right, but you're a wild animal. All of a sudden, she like curls up into this incredible kind of creature, and then like pushes herself against the end of the wall, and 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 is like just sitting there waiting. Right, and he comes back into the room, and now he sees her in the bed. She's naked. It's like oh, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. Right. Yeah. And he takes his uh, bathrobe off and walks over to the the netting. He starts to lift it up. And she comes flying across the bed, one leap, and smashes him in the face, right? And he's like, whoa. And then he goes, whoa. <laughs> this could be fun. <laughs> I like the women challenge. Yeah. And I'm like going, oh, no. <laughs> And you got good images. I got great images off of that. Yeah, yeah. They did a whole dance around getting in and out of the bed. And when he finally got in, she slipped out and, you know, reversed the roles and stuff. And that was that. But No, with people uh, that you photograph, manipulate, paint, whatever verb you want to use for the work you do and the stages of the work you do, uh, how much would you say your view of people... Because I think, like most men, we have this in common, which is this kind of relationship of your mother. Hmm. And if you have a good relationship with your mother, let's say you want to replicate that. If you have a terrible relationship with your mother, you want to find someone who's the opposite of your mother. Right. Or you want to restage the drama with your mother. Yeah. As, as, my, as a therapist once said to me, we, we want to restage that in our lives, and you get all the good lines now, <laughs> which, yeah. which eluded you in your, in your youth. So I, th- I think all art expression is in some way trying to correct a lot of stuff. And, and for you, you know, how trying so? to put some clarity to it, some order to it, make it make sense, you know. Yeah, well, how would you think that you're, you, you're very candid about your mother, who is obviously very ill. You know, she's mm-hmm. a very sick woman, mm-hmm. uh, and that plays out in her behavior. Um, she wasn't a mean-spirited woman. No. She was, no. She was just completely yeah, uh, overwhelmed just by alcohol. Control. Yeah. Yeah. How would you say that colored, because count to three when you read the book and you're Bell Bottoms and Haight-Ashbury and you're into a very kind of summer of love, 66 I think is when you head out mm-hmm. to the West Coast and you're in the thick of it. How do you think, what did you carry out there with you in terms of your idea about women and what you wanted? Or Because what I get from the book is you're someone who was kind of raised not to ask for anything. Well, I had you know sort of uh, two kinds of um, 
relationships with women. One one was uh, I was attracted to women that were absolutely bad for me. They opened up that void, you know, just emptiness that in a way that was like... Replaying that feeling. Yeah, and, it, you know, it was full of passion and it was full of, you know, this uh, you know profound need and stuff like that. It was very emotional and very short-lived. Uh, and then the other kind of uh, woman was one where, you know, they, they were really stable. Reliable. And reliable and... and Available. Uh, yeah, and I married them. Right, right, right. <laughs> You're married to April. I'm married to, and, I married. I was married and, once before. You were married once and, before. And uh, stable. Stable enough, yeah. But, but then, uh, yeah, I married uh, April, and you know, for the last thirty some odd years, yeah. Did your work change in sync with your attitude toward love and relationships? It did with time. You know, the early relationship with April, for example. We were both young artists really trying to find our voices, trying to understand who we were. I was dealing with uh, the wounds of the past as opposed to the, you know, the present uh, with her. So it wasn't apparent then other than the, the stability of our relationship gave me the courage to look into these other How areas. was she different? Well, you know, she's incredibly bright and uh, incredibly disciplined, and um, she, she's somebody that can multitask in, a, in an emotional way. Uh, do you have children? No. Do you think that that was partly because of what your childhood? Yeah, really? I think both April and I had a lot of very traumatic uh, things that uh, uh, passed that made that, that seem dangerous. Do you regret so, having not done that? Because you have a very warm... Humanistic, yeah. your personality. Yeah, you have a no, very, I, very easy I had, going. Uh, there, there was a point at which I uh, felt like I could handle having kids, uh, but April wasn't there yet. Right. And the one thing I wasn't going to do was insist that right. uh, we do it my way because I, I knew what the. the she was only going to indulge you so far. Yeah, right. and and or or it was going to break her down in a sure. way that I I couldn't bear. So you know. It passed. Mm -hmm. Now, in the book, your father, uh, he went that route that a lot of dads go, which is he just wants to give you the safe advice. Yeah. His parental duty was to say to you, you know, let's be reasonable now. Right. And he told you to go to get a business. Did your father live to see you become a great success? He did, yeah. My, my mother didn't. My father did. He, he actually didn't understand what success was in art anyway. That he'd kind of given up by then, right? So, on it, what? On, on understanding on me. you? Yeah, right. exactly. So you had a very, very kind of icy relationship with her. It was it was volatile and uh, complicated. But you know, he he really didn't know anything about art, so he didn't really know anything about what success in art was. And and back then, you know, success and fortune were not connected to each other in the art world. You you could be highly successful, you know, shown in museums around the world and, and still be doing a teaching job or driving a taxi or something to, to do it. So he was perplexed that I would even be in a field in which there wasn't a monetary reward necessarily, right? But at some point, he uh, started to see my name in print. 
And that was something that he understood as success. You know, all of a sudden, a, a local newspaper or you know, an art magazine or something. There, there's his son, right? And then he really flipped from a, from sort of disengagement to the proud parent who, you know, we'd <laughs> we'd go into a grocery store and at the checkout counter, go, you know who this is? My son. This is the artist. Da-da. He'd take the clipping out of his wallet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is from the New York Times. <laughs> My, that's E-R-I-C-F-I-S-C-H-L. Just the, oh, no E-L. No E. No E. <laughs> well, you know, he... He became an artist at the end of his life as well. He he discovered collage. And it took him a while after he retired to uh, find – he tried other things. And then all of a sudden he found himself like sitting in his office at home, cutting pictures out and gluing them together. And, and you know, he's, he was a, a, not a schooled artist. But he had an eye and he had a kind of liveliness to these collages that he made that were very expressive. And um, by the time he died, I had realized that he and I could never talk to each other. We just kept missing, you know. But we understood each other visually. And so he would send me his collages, and I knew exactly what he was thinking about, where he was at, how he was feeling. You know, he was really communicating through these visual images. And he showed me that he was, had been using my paintings to understand what had happened in our lives with, the, with my mother and the whole family dynamic. And so we actually were both visual people who understood what that meant to communicate visually to each other. So it was, it was deeply rewarding to me ultimately, to, but it took me a while to understand. That Did that he ever was. talk to you about your paintings and his view of your paintings? Well, at first, I mean, he didn't. He talked to me about Success, you know, you could see and be enthusiastic for this show and that show, et cetera, et cetera. But there was this uh, um, thing that happened that was, I, I think, um, you know, really blew my mind, which was that I, I had done a painting um, uh, called A Woman Possessed. And it was a painting of a, a woman outside their suburban home, drunk, passed out in the driveway surrounded by these dogs that were like, you know, beasts from hell. They were, you know, some were sniffing her, some were growling at, at the son who had just come home from school. The school books are on the ground. His bicycle's flipped over. He'd hopped off his bike. So this boy is trying to pull her away from these dogs and uh, her demon dogs. I, I showed the painting in Toronto, and the, and the critic described it in the most beautiful terms. He, he understood it as, as a painting that revealed the profound pain of love, of loving someone, right? And it was, it was a painting. It was the only painting in this show. It was a one-painting show. And he wrote extensively about it. And so, you know, Proud Son sends it to my father. And, and unbeknownst to me, my father sends the review off to my siblings, right? And my uh, younger sister, Lori, writes back a letter to him. She's furious. Why is he trying to make her remember this painful time, you know? And he, he shared these letters to me. I didn't know they 
were having till the the whole communication came to me. But he shared to me her response and then his response to her in which he revealed that he had been actually using my paintings the whole time to understand emotionally what had been happening in our lives and stuff and that he was just trying to heal something you know trying to bring her into it as well and to to into a kind of healing process and to acknowledge his awareness yeah. That, yeah which which took me completely by surprise and, and that that he had been seeing the work as deeply as he had you know revealed as you intended letter, it to be seen which is what i intended which, which and hoped for he might yeah. have been last on a list of people to have gotten yeah, it exactly yeah. yeah did he find his april and marry someone that was reliable for him emotionally. No. I mean, he, he married somebody that was absolutely reliable, loved him, you know, stable. It's a, yes, in that sense. Uh, but she was such a, an, a polar opposite of my mother. I was surprised because I, I, I thought my father would just find some, uh, some little bit more, um, uh, you know, manageable version of my mother, the, the things that he, he loved in my mother. Her creativity, her but who had triumphed over her alcoholism, yeah, her demons, yeah. yeah. But instead, he, he he wasn't attached to that part yeah. of her. So, yeah. yeah. Coming up in part two of our conversation, Eric Fischel talks about the challenges of becoming a first-time art teacher. I was only a couple of years older than them to begin with. Sure, you're a young teacher. And I had, I had never been taught techniques. And the benefits. That's where he met his current wife, April. This is Alec Baldwin. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm late. I'm late. Very important. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. 
Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is Eric Fischel. For years, he and his wife worked out of their downtown Manhattan studio. But he says the city doesn't feed him like it once did. Now he feels a greater connection to nature. Back in the early 80s, however, it was the perfect place to develop his craft. Soho was, was percolating. I mean, it was, a, it was a, um, a real village of artists. You know, the, uh, all of the... It wasn't Lower Madison Avenue like it is now. No, it was. It was not a mall. It was a. Yeah. It was a. It was a village, and and you know, kind of thing where you would see people, you knew on the streets every day. You'd sit and talk. You you know you'd break bread and hang out at art art bars and stuff like that. It was it 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 was great, and there was a you know a kind of exciting tension between the older artists and and us young kids who had come there to, to make a difference. And, and uh, you know, there was a rivalry and a, a kind of healthy competitive thing going on. We wanted to kill them, and they wanted to ignore us. By them, who do you mean, particularly? Well, there was a, a you know, generation of, of artists, um, you know, half a generation, of five, ten years older, uh, for example, that were um, doing sort of minimalist work. For example, uh, people like Don Judd or Carl Andre or Saul Lewitt. There were conceptual artists like uh, Larry Weiner or Joseph Kosuth, or uh, you know, to name a couple, that were doing a whole different kind of thing. Paint, painting had become a, a, um, a disregarded uh, um, medium, so. Part of my generation wa- was trying to see if we could reassert some kind of uh, authority and authenticity to painting. And the, the kind of painting that the minimalists had done had brought painting to its ultimate conclusion, which was to essentially have a, a, a kind of nothing there. A lot of artists felt it was a dead medium. And then there were other artists like myself who was absolutely no, the painting's real, and you know you just have to find the truth, find the you know the the things that matter, and convey them convincingly. There there wasn't yet the limos, there wasn't yet the the kind of rock star status. Uh, all, all those things were to come. When probably by. 85 mm-hmm. it started to happen and how did you and how would you describe that it was it, when it came it came how people weren't collecting you you talk about painting was an overlooked uh, medium art form we read about the art world where you know dead masters continue to sell paintings for tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. And at that time in the late 70s and 80s, is that what the art collecting world was confined to were the masters of art and, and everything contemporary was just no, what it was was there. There was a um, Warhol wasn't Warhol then, was he? He wasn't in terms of uh, financially. Right. He wasn't his paintings were still selling pretty cheaply. But a collector base entered that, that had made money very quickly in the dot com 
world and then moved into uh, sort of buying art and speculating on it. Um, there was a, a sense uh, uh, that the object was to find the next genius, right? So what you did was you started to speculate on young artists, uh, you, buying a lot of a cheap, hoping that one of them was going to turn out to be Picasso or something like that. Uh, there were all these stories uh, that, you know, a collector uh, buying a Jasper Johns painting for $250 and, you know, selling it for $11 million. Yeah. Johns giving it to you to pay his rent or one of those yeah, stories. Yeah, exactly, that kind of thing. So there was like this whole sort of kind of vogue among collectors to just go in and put money into young art. Speculatively. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, it was a way for them to deal with their money anyway because they had more And it changed the art world. Now I it's hedge guy, funders and yeah, stuff. I, I have a guy who's a friend of mine who's an artist. Mm-hmm. And then one, one guy will say to me, hey, man. And he, and he says it, you know, without an ounce of cynicism, go online and look at uh, Kevin Johnson. I'll make up a name. Go see Kevin Johnson. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Johnson has just a white canvas. It's just white. Uh, He's like, no, no, you don't get it, man. He's like, this this guy is white. This is what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Everyone's just digging on Kevin Johnson's. This isn't white. It's Kevin, Kevin Johnson's, Johnson's white. white. <laughs> it's Kevin Johnson's white. Everyone's just jonesing for this white. Yeah. You're going to buy this now for $150,000, and about five years from now, you're going to sell it for half a million dollars, maybe a million. I mean, everyone's going nuts for Kevin Johnson. Mm-hmm. And I'd look at paintings. I thought to myself, oh, that's just a game I didn't want to yeah. play. But people are playing that game constantly. Yeah, I don't understand why people don't have a space in their life where they don't do what they normally do. You know, like if you're a hedge funder or you know, some financial guy, why, why do you have to turn everything into a transaction? Monetize a monet- it. Why do you have to monetize it? Why, why isn't there this one place where you do something – just for yourself. But how do you feel knowing that you're going to do a painting and that painting is done? And you sit there and say, now this painting may wind up like in an apartment at 15 Central Park West. Mm-hmm. Some guy's just going to punt it to another guy and another guy. And, and you just yeah. don't even have any feeling about that? You just accept that? Or does it piss you off? Yeah. Well, it completely pisses me off. It's the kind of thing that if I actually let it get into my studio, it'll destroy what why I make art. You block that up. And obviously it gets increasingly harder and harder to do that. I mean, I do these um, works on paper, that uh, oil on paper. Uh, they're sketches. They're a, a great pleasure for me to do. Some of them lead to painting. Some of them don't. But it's, it's an activity that I do. And uh, there was a time when they would be sold, you know, for like... $5,000 and then, you know, $10,000. And I, uh, at some point on the secondary market, they were selling for $100,000. You know, I would sell a, sell it to, you know, at a show for $5,000. Six months later, they're in a, an auction someplace for $100,000, right? So you go back into the studio and you're, you know, I'm making my sketches and stuff like that. And I'm looking at it thinking, well, why not do a couple more? You know, <laughs> why not? Uh, you know, it's like all of a sudden they're starting to turn into currency, you know, mm-hmm. and which is a totally different 
sort of way of thinking about and how right? much and how hard is it for you to resist because I was joking with a friend of mine yeah. last night over dinner uh-huh. and I said what it must be like in your world where you're completely self-determining yeah. where you're completely self-generating I get kind of amazed I sit there and say God Eric Fisher's the kind of guy where if he and April are like laying there in bed on Sunday I mean I have a very kind of a silly improv comedy view of it. April Gornick and, and Eric Fischel are lying in bed on a Sunday <laughs> reading the New York Times and she turns to him and goes, Eric, I'd so love to go hella skiing. <laughs> you're reading the papers November. I'd so love to go hella skiing in British Columbia in January. And you're like, sure, baby. Let's go hella. And you go out and you paint a painting. Uh, and that's the hella skiing trip. <laughs> yeah. You know I mean, like, like you, can, you can just go do a painting, you're yeah. Eric Fischel, and r- run it out the door, yeah. whether you like it. Or, like, how hard is it for you to resist that? I used that? to have this fantasy that um, when my muse left me, I would still be able to make product, right? That I, that I, that I, I wouldn't be making art anymore, but I'd be making things that look like art and that that was okay. Right. And so there were times in my process where I got stuck. I, 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 the inspiration was gone and I was sure that it now, you know, my muse, my inspiration had, had left. Right. A total blockage kind of thing. And what I found to my horror was that it didn't just leave my head. It left my hand. And that I actually couldn't paint anymore. I, I couldn't draw. I couldn't make something look like something. It literally left every part. Yeah, of it, I feel the right? same way. Yeah. And I couldn't talk. And yeah. that was terrifying. Yeah. Right? That's that's like your worst nightmare. And uh, so I have that memory, which keeps it keeps me somewhat, you know, focused on on staying to, true to my. Um, ultimate goal. So you're there and you're in that space and the, and, and the muse isn't there for you and you've decided not to engage, preferably, if you don't. So what's the longest period you went that you didn't paint? It's not, it's not so much that I didn't paint. I, I kept trying I'm like a bulldog when it comes. I just you know, keep trying to go through it. It's just it's dead, dead, dead. So I try to keep in mind that there's like uh, two audiences and there's only one audience that's actually worth playing to. And it's an audience of voices that are in your head, They're, that are made up of um, heroes, you know, artists I admire. Such as? Well, you know, there's historical figures. They're like, you know, the, the greatest, you know, arm sculptor, you know, Michelangelo, say, the, the, the greatest sort of anger painter, Max Beckman, you know, they're, they, they're like, they have very particular things for me that I admire, that I either emulate or can't do and wish I could and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, but they're clarifying. And there, you know, there's the mother voice, the father voice, the gym teacher voice, the, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, a chorus. Yeah, yeah, and they're all in there sort of saying what I can and can't do, what I should and shouldn't do, et cetera. And so I'm like each painting is sort of proving to these voices that this was a, the right move, uh, you know, that I was going to do something that they would admire, something that would finally shut them up, finally, you know, whatever. Anyway, I, this is a uh, an audience of... Um, 
that is stands outside of uh, uh, time. It's it's constant and and it has a quality uh, standard to it that I understand. You know, I can tell when I'm my paintings are falling short of that performance that you know it didn't reach where I needed it to go because I I knew that I was falling short of this person I admire, this person that I hate. Insofar as your own paintings through your success are monetized mm-hmm. uh, or just collected by, by pure collectors and or hang in institutions, have you yourself collected others' paintings? Have you used your success? Whose art hangs in your home? Yeah, have you I, collected art? I have. I, I don't consider myself a collector mm-hmm. at all. What I What I did was at a certain point I wanted to acknowledge my peers. I, so I, I wanted to collect something of each of the people that I admire who, uh, you know, have inspired me, supported me, uh, you know, whatever, helped me form my thoughts. So, you know, I have examples of their work. That's why I'm not a collector. It's because I don't have the connoisseurship in terms of going after the best David Sally painting, the best Cindy Sherman, the, the best Anselm Kiefer, you know, things like that. I, what I have is examples of their work that, that somebody looking over my shoulder would say, oh, this was your time and these were your people and stuff. And what about your own work? Have you finished a painting and you said, that's for me? Yeah, yeah, so and the older hangs. I get, the more I do that. Yeah, <laughs> I'll I, keep this one. Early on, I couldn't afford it, and uh, you know, let some of my my best work go fly out the window. Yeah, exactly. Now I'm a little bit more precious about about that, and and part of it is the you know the the love doesn't come back in the way you need it to come back. The exchange is not. You know, it it doesn't really work in the way you want it to, which is to say, I I make a painting out of love, right? It uh, and and a profound love, which includes respect, uh, uh, admiration, desire, need. You know, all of the things that go into you know being a human, wanting to communicate to another human, and and connect to another human. I call that love, and and so I make a painting out of love, and I'm seeking love in return. I want that. I want that to come back in that way, right? So somebody gives you money, right? Which, on one hand, you think, well, that's an expression of love. They want to possess your work, so so they're they're expressing love. But money doesn't feel like love because it's a neutral currency. Now, I have to change that money into something that tells me how much love I just got back, right? How do you do that? Exactly. That's where the issue is. How do you is. do that? How do you do that? You know, how have so, you done it? Well, so you, you, know, you buy a car or you buy a house. You, you uh, buy— Add on to your house. Yeah, exactly. You do, you do things that you want slash need. You do that, and then there's a point at which you don't need those things anymore. Right. You've got all your toys and stuff. Your mortgage is paid. Exactly. But now you have excess, yeah. right? So is that excess love, or is oh. that just— <laughs> Well, but my question for you is, when the muse goes away, 
when you lapse into a period of product versus art, mm-hmm. when, when the artist, and that's a very real condition, uh, struggles, I found people where it affects them in many ways. It affects their appetite, mm-hmm. their sexual appetite, their physical health, their emotional health, sure. their sleep. I mean, it really, really, really damages yeah. them and hurts them. Have you gone through periods of that where you were like mm-hmm. really, really thought you were losing it? Yeah. Absolutely. What'd you do to get out of it? I uh, painted your way out of it. Ultimately, painted the way out of it, but uh, you know, relied relied a lot on April to, you know, keep me sort of above. So you bring the me to where. So you bring me to where our the 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 one of our last two questions is. Yeah. Let's go to Halifax and you meet April. And where are you at your life when you meet April? And what happened? I'm uh, I'm twenty seven years old or something like that. I'm teaching at this uh, art school that actually is a very sort of advanced thinking uh, uh, place that, like Cal Arts, where I went to school, uh, Nova Scotia College of Art and Design was also sort of based on the most radical uh, art of the moment, um, anti-painting. So they hired me as a young, untested painter, uh, teacher, simply because they'd fired somebody mid-semester, needed someone right away. They could care less about painting, so they took a risk on this guy uh, based on what uh, my former teacher had recommended. I get this job. I'm in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I go up there with my wife at the time. spend three months teaching there, she lapsing into a deep depression because uh, she, she's rootless and, and uh, being ignored and I'm... Following you, basically. Yeah, and following me and I'm not sensitive enough to it, you know, what that sacrifice was. And, uh, you know, we moved back to uh, Chicago in the summer and I get rehired and she announces she doesn't want to go back and our marriage is over. And that following year, I meet April. I didn't plan on falling in love. I, I just planned on having sex. And uh, Shame and, on you, Eric. <laughs> I know. Shame on you. <laughs> Call me shallow. Shallow. You know? So shallow. <laughs> anyway, one thing led to another. And, and what it was was I was actually going through a, a, a very – sort of complicated set of emotions for, uh, you know, I I had never mourned the death of my mother. Uh, I had just broken up with, you know, split with my wife kind of thing. I was now uh, falling in in love, not wanting to, with April. Uh, My work was going through a transition where I was giving up the artist I thought I was going to be for the artist I ultimately became, and that period of doubt threw me into a kind of uh, series of, you know, anxiety attacks, panic modes, where I really began to have some serious psychological issues. I was dissociating and, you know, and uh, ended up on, uh, you know, antipsychotic medicine and stuff like that to stabilize me. Meanwhile, I'm teaching. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, you're up showing these young, impressionable minds the world through your eyes. Exactly. Let me show you the world through my (laughs) clonopin-soaked eyes. And the the thing is that 
I was only a couple of years older than them to begin with. Sure, you're a young teacher, and I had I had never been taught technique, so I'm teaching. Were you painting, doing, were you doing the orgy thing like your teachers were doing at Cal Arts, or was that or that day come and gone? That, that day had come. Yeah, and okay, gone. great. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. So go well, ahead. You know, right. to some extent, I I was definitely going through several uh, women in the in the student body, but I not all at the same moment, but. Right. Uh, um, I, it was you know, a sacrifice. You yeah, right. I mean, it's a you know, it was a small, isolated community. The winters are harsh up yeah, there. It's Gilligan's You're, Island. Yeah, <laughs> and when the skipper runs into Ginger and Marianne, we can only talk <laughs> about the do? weather for so many times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and the title charts. <laughs> so go ahead. So the skipper runs into Ginger and Marianne. Yeah, and ultimately ran ran into April, and uh, she stuck with me through this time, which was you know really difficult, and uh, in a kind of way that. You know, I, I just couldn't imagine there being anybody else. So, so we did. Now, she was a student who started out doing very uh, conceptual art. I actually, the way I tried to impress on her to, to make her look at me was I found her working on a, on a project she was doing, some, something that had, she was gluing pieces of wood to a piece of paper and then writing some obscure philosophical text around it. And it was, you know, I just went up to her and said, you know, the, the idea of gluing wood onto paper just seemed the redundancy that was so stupid. I, I can't imagine why anyone would do it. Thinking that she'd want to have dinner with me, having said that. And she just told me to go fuck myself, and and that was that. And and then for the next six months, I tried to make nice to sort of to recover to recover from your offense. And uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't know what made me think an insult would be the way to open the door. But did she ever return it, the favor? It did work. I yeah. guess. Oh, it did. So, yeah. Did she ever return the favor? Did, did the she ever walk into? Favor? Did yeah. she ever? Yeah, did she ever walk into your studio and say, "What were you thinking?" Yeah. This is just. Yeah. No, she. Uh, she's actually my my greatest, uh, most clear seen critic. Is she your most prevalent subject? Have you painted her more than any other person? Yes. You have? Yeah. I've painted her a lot. I've painted her in, in disguised ways, and I've painted her in ways where you can see it's her. Um, so now you are a very well-known man, mm. and your work is very popular. You and your wife are a very uh, admired couple in, in a community that you live in. And I want to ask you, uh, you know, A, why do you live out here particularly? You could uh, escape, uh, like a lot of great artists find they want to have real anonymity and peace. You could go live in Italy or anywhere you want to go. Uh, why here? And also, let's be honest, we live out here and there are certain social rhythms out here and there are certain mm -hmm. patterns that repeat themselves almost metronomically out here all the time. Mm -hmm. And do you find in a, in, in a strange way you've washed up on the shores of your own Port Washington Yacht Club in a way? I mean, yeah. is there kind of a rigor to the way you're living now that you didn't bargain for? Yeah, I think there, there was a, a moment a while back where I kind of looked around and went, oh, my God, you know, this is, this is where I grew up. I'm in a different relationship to it, but it's definitely, uh, you know, more of a suburban than an urban environment and a, a, and a suburban kind of rhythm to it. But uh, everybody needs a sense of community, needs a sense of place, where, where they belong, right? Um, I grew up on Long Island. You grew up on Long Island. Uh, I used to come out here in the summertime it's familiar territory, et cetera. 
it seems natural in a way to to want to be here and also it's there's a scale to it that makes you think that you can make a difference it seems like pretty much everywhere you go we're in a state of you know transformation or decay or something where it's you know it's uh, it, what is it going to take 10 years before this place gets ruined and you go to someplace else it's going to take another 5 years before that one does it's like, so you think okay I'll stay and fight it a little bit and and do that plus, plus on some you know sort of basic level you actually feel like you belong here right. you know so you you want it to it's be, mine. to do it. it's, 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 my, it's mine. part of it's, it's other mine. people's and it's mine yeah well so is it safe to say just to, to conclude this if you will uh, that uh, the eponymous bad boy of the title still has his doubts still has his anxiety still has his fears and issues and so forth he just has learned to handle them differently I think that's true. Yeah, absolutely. They they don't go away. I I thought that the older you got, the easier it got. It turns out the opposite. <laughs> we just learned how to manage it better. You just manage it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Eric Fischel says he didn't set out to write a memoir. His friend Michael Stone was writing about Cal Arts, which then morphed into their book, Bad Boy, My Life on and Off the Canvas. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. You dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more more info now.